So today we are looking at John 13, 18 through 30, and we're continuing our series through the Gospel of John. At this point, Jesus and his disciples, they are celebrating the Passover feast, but it's also Jesus's last supper before his crucifixion. Judas has already negotiated the price with the priests for which he will hand over Jesus 30 pieces of silver. And verse two of this chapter also tells us that the devil is already tempting Judas to follow through on that deal. Judas then washes the disciples' filthy feet, including Judas's, as we learned about last week, and commands them to follow his example. And now, in verse 18, Jesus shifts the conversation. So read with me. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel... He gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. And it was night. For being a guy who plays a central role in Jesus's ministry and in the story of the crucifixion, we actually don't know a ton about Judas. The Bible identifies him as Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. And the name Judas means praise. It was a very common name because it's the Greek form of the Hebrew name Judah, which was the name of one of Jacob, the patriarch's 12 sons, and it was the name of the tribe where King David came from, and also Jesus. In fact, Judas was very likely also from the tribe of Judah. Some scholars believe that the name Iscariot refers to the town he was from, which was possibly Cariote, which was believed to be in Judah. And so, if Judas was from Judah, that would mean he was the only disciple from the same tribe as Jesus. All the rest were from Galilee up north. That would mean Judas was from the same tribe as the kings. Not some backwater place like the rest of those fishermen. Judas, he's from the same tribe that the prophets said the Messiah would come from. Now, we don't know what Judas's life was like before meeting Jesus. He might have been a part of the radical nationalistic group, the Zealots, but we don't know that for sure. 
No matter his previous life, though, we know that Jesus chose Judas to follow him and to be a part of his ministry. Judas took part in everything we see the disciples doing. When they're sent out to preach that the kingdom of God has arrived, he's there. When Jesus feeds the 5,000, Judas is handing out baskets. He's a friend of Jesus and the other disciples, and he becomes so trusted that he's placed in charge of the money bag. He's tasked with caring for all the donations that they receive in their ministry. And we need to see Judas in this light as a human, a person. It's too easy to just reduce him to a cartoon villain in our minds, just this like mustache twirling guy. He's like, I love Satan. And, but we have to remember that at the beginning, he was a sincere follower of Jesus. He heard Jesus preach, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. And he thought, I wanna be a part of that. He believed that Jesus was someone worth following. And I think he would have fit in well at church, that many of us would have even been friends with him. The problem with treating Judas as just a cardboard cutout villain is that it gives us permission to distance ourselves from what he did. It means I can place myself above him. Look at that horrible, evil little man. What a disgrace. But once we start to see him as human, an inescapable truth starts to creep in. If he was a human just like me, what's to stop me from ending up like him? I want to invite you to wrestle with that question today. Jesus says to his disciples, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. So previously, Jesus has mentioned that someone among their ranks would turn on them. Like in John 6, 70, did I not choose you, the 12? And yet one of you is a devil. But here, he makes an allusion to Psalm 41, 9, where King David is lamenting being betrayed by one of his closest friends and advisors, Ahithophel. Eating bread together in this context, especially with a superior like a king, it was a sign not just of hospitality, but of trust and loyalty. Betraying such generosity and love was considered an act of treachery. And then the phrase, lifting his heel against me, gives the impression not just of rejection, but actual disdain. There's malice mixed in with the betrayal and the bitterness. And you can see that with Ahithophel against David as recorded in 2 Samuel. Not only did Ahithophel desert David in the midst of an insurrection led by David's own son, Absalom, Ahithophel joined with the insurrectionists to overthrow David and then publicly shame him. That's the level of betrayal that Judas is scheming against Jesus. Just like Ahithophel, Judas has eaten at his master's table many, many times. He's a close friend. And how does Judas repay Jesus? By lifting his heel. It's a horrifying turnaround. And I wanna start with the big question up front. Why did Judas choose to betray Jesus? There's a lot of debate here because ultimately we don't really get Judas's side of the story. 
One theory is that he loved money so much that the 30 pieces of silver was enough for him to just throw away three years worth of friendship and brotherhood. And we know that Judas did love money. He had been skimming funds from the money bag. But at least to me, that isn't a fully satisfying answer because, well, 30 pieces of silver wasn't a massive fortune back then. It wasn't a tiny amount, but Judas could have easily gleaned that through his theft. He wasn't so desperate that he was just like, I need something. I need something bold and heinous to get some money. So money was probably not the main reason, but it was a perk. It was icing on the cake. The most likely explanation when you look at the scriptural, cultural, historical context is that Judas realized that he wanted a different Messiah than Jesus. Jesus wasn't the king he was looking for. Judas like most of the Israelites of that day, they were looking for a mighty king to conquer the pagan Romans, rescue Israel, and return their nation back to its glorious past. I mean, check out the sequence of events in Judas's life. He saw Jesus heal the sick, cast out demons, raise people from the dead. He saw Jesus leave the Pharisees and Sadducees speechless, saw a Roman centurion submit to Jesus all displays of Jesus' power and might. Judas is like, yes, this is exactly what I've been looking for. Judas participates in the triumphal entry with the rest of the disciples. All of Jerusalem is celebrating Jesus as king, as the promised descendant of King David to finally come and rule on the throne and save their country. But what does Jesus do next? Does he march right into uh, the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, and toss him off his throne? No. He marches over to the temple, and he tosses out the money lenders. And then he says the temple is, was to be a house of prayer for all nations, not just Israel. And then he tells people to pay taxes to Caesar, which was blasphemy in the eyes of many Israelites. And then he prophesies about the destruction of the temple, not the establishment of a Jewish empire, but ultimate destruction at the hands of pagan Gentiles. He talks about coming persecution for his followers, and he talks about dying himself. And Judas can't take it anymore. He goes to the priest. He says, I'll give him to you. He's not my Messiah. Jesus didn't turn out to be who Jesus wanted him to be. Uh, Jesus didn't turn out to be who Judas wanted him to be. He wasn't willing to accept a king who wasn't going to set up an immediate earthly kingdom, who didn't have the same enemies as he did. No, no, no. This king was supposed to let his followers suffer and die and was willing himself to suffer and die? What kind of a king is that? You see, what, Jesus, what Judas did was he took what he wanted and he placed that upon the kind of Messiah he wanted, the kind of God he wanted. Just because we use the name of Jesus, that doesn't mean we're following the true Jesus as our king. We may very well be following a king of our own making. We just use Jesus' name. We redefine Jesus to fit into the right Box, one who focuses on our comfort, our desires, our fears, and who hates the same people we hate. Or like Judas, we put qualifiers, conditions on our discipleship. Jesus, I love you, but you need to keep my kids safe. 
I love you, but I need to be secure in my finances. I'll follow you, but I need that professional advancement. I need that relationship to work out. I need to stay healthy. I need my cultural enemies to fail. I need, I need, I need. And maybe we don't use those words explicitly, but deep down, it's there. And they're not necessarily bad things we're desiring. Many of them are good things. Judas wanted his people, God's chosen people, to be delivered, liberated from brutal pagan tyrants. That's a good thing. That's a just thing to desire. But he was unwilling to see the bigger picture. He saw following Jesus as just a means to an end, that this following Jesus thing is only worth it if I get this. And therein lies the deception of the snake in the Garden of Eden to Adam and Eve, that you need more than God alone, that God is not enough, that he's holding back on you. You need to go your own way. He told Adam and Eve, the serpent did, take and eat of this fruit, and you'll finally get what you want. You'll become God. The the reality is, is that they would die. So Jesus tells his disciples, a close friend will spurn me. But catch why Jesus says he's telling the disciples this. Verse 19, I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. He's concerned about the faith of the remaining 11. When all is said and done and Judas has handed Jesus over to be crucified, Jesus still wants the disciples to believe that I am he, that he is the Messiah. I mean, think about it. If they were to see one of their closest friends, someone handpicked by Jesus, and they see him betray Jesus, and then Jesus dies, it could cause them to completely doubt everything. Was Jesus really in charge? Was he even really that powerful? He couldn't even see that someone in his own inner circle was a traitor. And that's so relatable, right? When a Christian leader falls, when we hear about spiritual abuse in the church, sexual abuse, abuse of power, pastors stealing affairs, it can shake people's faith. That leader was the leader who led me to Christ, That was the church I was discipled at. Those were the Christians that raised me. How could any of this gospel stuff actually be true if the people who claim to follow Jesus could do such a thing? It's wrecking so many people's faith. Study after study has shown that the number one reason people are leaving the church, it's not because of atheism or liberalism or Harry Potter or something like that. It's because of hypocrisy in the church. It's because they see in too many Christians and in too many of our church leaders a pursuit of power over a pursuit of Jesus, using the name of Jesus instead of serving people, selling the name of Christ so they can earn just a handful of silver. And I get it. My faith struggles with these things when Story after story comes out. There's a special kind of trauma that comes from spiritual abuse. But the thing, and it's the only thing at times that keeps me grounded, 
It's when I take my eyes off of people and I put them back on Jesus. Because the horrible evil deeds of people are not a reflection of Jesus. They are not Jesus. They perverted his message. They diverted from his mission. They may have even used Jesus's name as a cover for their abuse, but that does not mean it is Jesus. And I'm not trying to minimize any abuse committed by so-called Christian leaders or minimize any pain, but I want to plead with you, if you've been burned, don't leave Jesus. Jesus is not caught off guard by human hypocrisy. In fact, he's someone who knows betrayal very well. You're not alone. You are not alone in your pain. Jesus knows the grief of what it feels like to be betrayed by someone you loved, by someone you trusted. He feels that pain right along with you. He weeps with you. But that betrayal does not change who Jesus is. I am he, he says. And he continues in verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. At a first glance, this can kind of seem like it came out of the blue, but this statement is connected to Jesus's desire to shore up the disciples' faith. After watching Jesus be betrayed by one of their own, they might question even the commission Jesus had given to them. Maybe this whole discipleship thing was a sham. Jesus chose Judas and look what happened to him. But Jesus is saying, you don't need to worry. I'm sending you. You are legitimate ministers to carry the flame of the message. Verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And at this clear, blunt statement that someone in this very room is going to betray Jesus, the disciples freak out. There's an explosion of action and confusion. The Gospel of Luke says that they all start arguing with each other, possibly even accusing one another, pointing fingers. Who is it? Is it you? Is it him? The Gospel of Matthew shows that after they all calm down, they start to ask, perhaps in a moment of extreme self-awareness and fear, is it me? Is it I, Lord? One by one, they ask him. Why? Well, perhaps they know their own hearts. They know that they have had doubts too. Maybe in the past, they've been frustrated by Jesus' teachings, how he wouldn't conform to the kind of Messiah they wanted. Deep down, they knew the sin in their own heart and what they were capable of. Verses 23 to 24. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. All right, so all due respect to Leonardo da Vinci, but this is where he got it wrong in his famous painting, okay? So they weren't sitting at a large table. In a tradition dating all the way back to the Greek empire, for important extravagant feasts, guests would recline on couches at a low table. And so you'd lay on your left side, and, uh, you know, your stinky feet are pointed away from the food. 
and you prop yourself up on your left arm so that your right hand is free to grab food and drinks and chat. And, and so I'm explaining all this so it helps us understand the mechanics of what's about to happen here. Peter, the busybody that he is, signals to a man called the disciple whom Jesus loved. And we know from context that this unnamed disciple is John, the author of this book. And Peter has to signal to John because John is the one reclining next to Jesus. So he's on Jesus's right. So we have Jesus here, John here, Peter here. Got it? Okay. And so Peter, he wants to know who the traitor is, but he can't talk directly to Jesus because he wants it to be discreet. So he's like, okay, I gotta go through John. So John, following Peter's direction, decides to ask Jesus. And because they're on their sides and Jesus is to John's left, verse 25 says that John has to lean back against Jesus, literally meaning that John's head is laying on Jesus' chest. And John quietly asks Jesus, who is it? And Jesus answers just loud enough for John to hear, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I've dipped it. All right, so first observation Morsel is a really fun word that we don't use enough in modern times, so let's fix that, guys, okay? And uh, second, morsel here is referring to a practice where the host would take a piece of bread, which was normally like a flat bread, and they would dip it into a common bowl of like meaty soup or uh, fruit and herbs puree, and then the host would literally put it in the mouth of their most honored guest, this went beyond just the normal hospitality and honor of breaking bread together. This host was singling out someone that he wanted to show his favor to and feeding him straight from the master's hand. And now, like, personally, I don't like it when people feed me like a baby or something, but I mean, if Jesus is offering, like, okay, you know, um, all the disciples, they were probably dreaming of the moment where they could get the morsel. Like, oh, I wanted that. So Jesus takes the bread, dips it in the bowl, and extends the morsel out to Judas. Yeah, he's sending a signal to John about who's going to betray him. But it's more than that. It's a final act of love and grace offered to Judas. We know that Judas was most likely sitting next to Jesus, so opposite of John. So we have John, Jesus, and Judas, because Jesus does this quickly, casually. He doesn't get up. So Judas is right there in a place of honor, of all places, next to Jesus, and now he gets the morsel. Previously, Jesus has already washed the animal feces and caked mud off of Judas's sweaty feet, and now, even now, after all of that, knowing what's going on in Judas's heart, Jesus leans to his left, which means he has to lean back on Judas now, just like John leaned on him, and he extends to Judas a symbol of friendship. The theologian D.A. Carson says, uh, of this moment, it was the final gesture of supreme love. I mean, do you guys fully understand what's happening here? This is how much grace Jesus is full of that he can look at the man who is going to throw away all the years of friendship they have had together, the man who is going to send Jesus to his death 
with a kiss. And Jesus can still offer out his hand and say, I love you. Here's some food. Take and eat. Even when Judas is leaving, uh, leading Roman soldiers to come and arrest Jesus, Matthew 26 says that Jesus calls Judas friend. I mean, can we comprehend what kind of grace that is? This is how Jesus treats all his enemies. He gives them so much grace. And he puts it this way in Matthew 5, 43 through 45. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. God showers so much love and grace upon those who commit evil, even those who hate him. Theologically, this is known as common grace. The grace God gives to all mankind, regardless of our faithfulness to him. I mean, and remember what grace is. It's an undeserved gift. And none of us deserve what God has given to us. He's given us clothes, food, shelter, water, friends, family, jobs. And even if we don't have many of those things, the very fact that we can breathe is grace. It's grace that he still allows us to live our lives sinning against him, opposing his reign as master over our lives. And he doesn't just smite us off the earth. Instead, he says, here's some food. Take and eat. But then, even then, God's grace goes deeper. Even though we so often say with our mouths and with our lives, I don't want you ruling over my life. You're not the kind of king I want. I want control. I get to choose. Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God doesn't look down upon human rebellion against his heavenly rule and say, I'm fine feeding you for a little while because I'm going to burn in hell anyways. No. God doesn't merely tolerate us. He loves us. He says, I don't want to leave you there. I know you don't want me as king. I know you reject me, but I love you so much that I want to save you. Save you from destroying yourself with your sins. Save you from death. Save you from the power of evil. So God in his infinite, abundant grace sends his only son, Jesus, to die a brutal, torturous death on a cross for his enemies, for treasonous sinners. Jesus says, you're hungry? I have something better than bread. Here is my body broken and torn for you so that you may have life. Take and eat. Be filled, friend, and find true life. That's the kind of grace Jesus is offering to Judas. He's telling him that it's not too late. You can still choose me. And I mean, that's what's so amazing about all of this. He knows what Judas is going to choose. It was prophesied. It was foretold. But Jesus is so full of grace that he must still offer Judas a final way out. 
Just like God offered it to Adam and to Cain and to Israel. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest in your souls. Choose me. I imagine that for Jesus and Judas, this moment must have felt like it lasted for minutes or maybe even hours. Jesus' arm extended, the morsel hanging in the air. Will Judas accept the grace or will he reject it? Judas accepts the morsel but rejects the grace. No matter how many times I read the gospel accounts, there's a part of me that is pulling for Judas, right? This time, don't do it, man. Maybe he'll get it this time. Maybe he'll finally see. But he doesn't because it needed to happen because Jesus has to die. And Judas is a part of that plan. But this raises the important question, did Judas really have a choice then since this was God's plan from the beginning? It's a great question, one I've been wrestling with for the past few weeks as I've been studying this. And Steve, he went in depth on a very similar subject a couple weeks ago in John 12, 35 through 50. So check that sermon out for a longer discussion. But the short answer to the question, did Judas really have a choice, is no. And yes. I know people hate answers like that, but it's true. There's a paradox here, a tension between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And it's something we see all throughout scripture. We see the insistence that God is in control, but also the insistence that humans are responsible for their sin and that they're constantly called and told, don't choose sin, choose God. It implies there's a choice right? As I said before, Judas was not an unthinking, unfeeling robot, just a pawn there to function in the story as the traitor. No, he was a full human made in the image of God. He had a conscience knowing right from wrong, and he had a choice. But at the same time, this was God's plan from the beginning. Jesus later calls Judas in John 17, 12, a son of destruction. It's what he was born to do. It was his destiny. There's a tension between the two sides, but here's the thing. Both things can be true at the same time, that this was God's plan from the beginning and that Judas still made the choice and is responsible for his choice. And I know that doesn't quite feel like a satisfying answer, but we don't need to explain away the tension. We can embrace it and accept it. As humans, we, we become just so obsessed with trying to grasp everything intellectually, and we need to remember that there is so much we cannot grasp, and that's okay. Everything, it's not just going to click into place like a Lego set if we have all the right pieces of information. We're finite, and we're not as smart as we think we are. Some things are just mysteries. And that's a good thing. I think we need to rediscover mystery and not run from them or explain them away. Mystery reminds us who we are, that we are small, and that God is so much bigger than we can comprehend. 
Judas made his choice, choosing to reject Jesus as his Messiah and King. And in doing so, he accomplished the plan that God had laid out before the beginning of time itself. And Satan entered into him. This is possibly one of the most chilling verses in the Bible, and it goes beyond just basic demon possession. This is the devil himself, the father of lies, the serpent in the garden, taking over a man like this perversion of the Holy Spirit's indwelling. We know from verse two that Satan had already been tempting Judah, so why not enter into him then? Well, Judas was offered so many opportunities to turn back, grace after grace, and instead of that grace softening his heart, it hardened his resolve. And this morsel, this token of friendship that Jesus was offering, it was the final straw. Instead of receiving the morsel in gratefulness, he probably received it in bitterness and anger with resentment. This this guy, he thinks he can buy my love back? He's not my king. My king wouldn't ride a humble donkey. He'd be strong on a white horse ready to conquer. My king wouldn't talk about dying and sacrifice. He'd talk about winning. My king wouldn't get down to wash other people's feet. He'd make one of us wash his This man is not my king. Instead of the final offer of grace winning him back, it's what pushes him over the edge and makes him finally decide once and for all to betray Jesus. And it's at this point that Jesus stops pursuing Judas. He knows that Judas has made up his mind, so Jesus is going to give Judas what he wants. What you are going to do Do quickly, he says. The great missiologist Leslie Newbigin says about this moment, the final act of love becomes with a terrible immediacy the decisive moment of judgment. The final gesture of affection precipitates the final surrender of Judas to the power of darkness. And this reflects John 3, 19 through 20. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world And the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Jesus offers us the light, shows us the truth of who he is, what he came to do for us, his great love for us, and some receive that news joyfully, ready to surrender to their new king, but others... We don't surrender. We love our sin too much. We love our plans, our desires, and agendas. And we hate that this king should dare tell us what to do with our lives. We hate that the light exposes, so we reject him. But Jesus keeps calling, offering grace after grace, like what he offered to Judas. But at the same time, at some point, At some point, our hearts can be so hardened in our rejection of his grace, our rejection of the light that Jesus says, as you wish. You want a life without my grace, without my presence, without my protection and rule? You may have it. To use the language of Romans 1, he gives us up, delivers us over to our sin. What you are going to do, do quickly. Go and betray me. It's his final command to Judas. And it shows 
Jesus is still in control of the situation. He's not falling into any traps set by the religious leaders, the Romans, the devil. John 10, 18, no one takes it, that's his life, from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. This was his plan from the beginning, and it's being followed to a T. The disciples, they didn't hear Jesus talking to John, so they're all confused why Jesus is sending Judas away in the middle of the meal. It was a really unusual thing for an honored guest to leave during an important feast, so they're all wondering, why is he leaving? So they go, oh, well, maybe there's more food to buy. Maybe he was going to give money to the poor. They had no real clue, and for some reason, John isn't telling Peter or anyone else that what he knew, that Judas was the traitor. Verse 30, so after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. In the time between Jesus washing his disciples' feet to now, the sun had set and darkness had come. It was a literal statement. It was also symbolic of the darkness that had fully engulfed Judas, symbolic of the darkness that was engulfing the religious leaders who wanted Jesus dead. When Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, just hours later, Jesus tells them in Luke twenty-two fifty-three, this is your hour and the power of darkness. The Jewish day ended actually when the sun set. So uh, that meant that a new day had just begun for them. It was now Friday, a dark day, literally. At one point on this Friday, in the middle of the day, the sun is entirely blocked and darkness enshrouds all of Jerusalem. But it's dark because this is the day that the Son of God was going to be executed by the hands of the Roman state, given over by his own people. It's a day full of darkness. But you'll notice that when we refer to the Friday of Holy Week, we don't call it Dark Friday, right? No, we call it Good Friday. Why? Because John 1, 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Satan didn't have the last word. Death didn't have the last word. Judas didn't have the last word. Remember, Jesus was in control from the start. This was the plan, to die. He wasn't coming as some political Messiah here to conquer and overthrow the Roman oppressors and be crowned the king of Israel. He came as the true Messiah sent by God here to conquer and overthrow death and sin itself and be crowned the king of kings. And the Sunday after he was crucified, Jesus walked out of that tomb, triumphant, victorious, glorified. And right now, this very second, he is seated in the throne room of heaven at the right hand of the, of the Father. And one day he is coming back, coming back to make all things new, to make all the bad things undone and to once and for all rule as our beloved king where there will be no more suffering, no more tears, no more sin, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen. Amen. And we have that choice today to either follow him as our Lord, as our King, or we can take the path of Judas, our own path into darkness. Choose Jesus. Not the Jesus of your own making, but here, 
how he has revealed himself in scripture. He's a far better king than we could ever create ourselves. Give him your loyalty. Let's pray.